House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Everybody to my show tonight, and with me, I'm really fortunate to have Rob Shelsky. Now, Rob is um, an author, and he has done an amazing array of different books, and he also writes for various publications. And one of the things that absolutely intrigues me about Rob's work, and we're going to come on to this in, in much more detail later on, is his ability to use science and put that into a book that helps us to understand hypotheses. So, for example, in this instance tonight, we're going to talk about his understanding of time travel, but to make it really readable so that we understand it, who are not scientists, where we don't understand formulas and the kind of the laws of physics, um, Rob is going to help us to understand his views and, and put it into real kind of layman's terms, if you like. So welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you for having me. So I'm intrigued as to how we get from schoolboy Rob to time travel invasion, your, your new release. So tell me a little bit about yourself in terms of your kind of growing up and your influences that led you into writing. Well, I um, started pretty young. I always loved to read, even when I was very young. I've lived in Australia. I've gone to university in Canada and the United States. And then I became a tech writer. So it was a short step from tech writing to writing on my own. But I do like, I'm absolutely fascinated by science. I have a degree in it. And um, so I became more involved in that field. And I began by writing books about UFOs, and then I love time travel myself, so I started investigating it. And when I started writing about it, I didn't think there'd be hardly any information that was still in the realm of science fiction, but I like putting puzzles together, drawing information from different sources, and I found that by doing that, I came up with a fairly convincing argument that time travel might not only be real, but already exist. Mm -hmm. Now... But going back to your interest in UFOs and, and kind of that kind of paranormal, how did you get into that in the first place? What was it well, that excited you about it? Uh, when I was very young, I was very, very interested in UFOs. I'm talking six or seven years old. I remember having a fa uh, an argument with my father when I was seven about flying saucers being real. And, of course, he took the other side. I think it was just being, you know, the devil's advocate. But I've always had an interest. And then my brother... Apparently, when he was 16, he and a friend had a, a case of missing time when they were camping out in the desert in East California. And he, wouldn't, he didn't tell me about it for like another 20 years, and he finally admitted to it. And this is what got me interested even more deeply in UFOs. So I started researching it, did it on my own, did it for several magazines, including Alien Skin Magazine, uh, did investigative reports. And then I also was a MUFON field investigator and um, learned a great deal through them as well. It's, uh, my problem with all of these is like with MUFON, it's a great organization, but it's a collector of data. What I wanted to do was go further and actually find some answers, not just accumulate more data. And if you read a lot of these books on UFOs, you find that they're great on case histories, but they really don't draw any real conclusions about it other than the standard ones. And I just wanted to go further. I wanted some answers. So what were your influences at the time? Because, there, of course, there are so many different views in terms of whether UFOs exist. What were your particular influences? Well, um, I started reading about different incidences, and then I started actually investigating them on my own. 
For instance, there was a wave of UFO sightings in Pine Bush, New York. I lived in Florida at the time, so I actually took a trip up there and spent several weeks up there investigating it. I also did at um, Gulf Breeze, Florida, where they had it. I've been out west to a sightings where there. I have uh, even been to England when you had your super storm, summer storm of uh, UFO sightings. And um, it's a gradual project. It just began to evolve. The more I learned, the more I'm convinced that they did exist. And the more I was convinced they existed, the more I began to question the government's insistence that they didn't exist. And... Uh, Again, it was a step-by-step -step process, but it was mostly hands-on field investigation that got me going on this, and then talking with other people in the field and just growing from there. And what about um, abduction? Do you believe in alien abduct abduction and um, that they're gathering information and evidence? And uh, Yes, I wrote a book, Deadly UFOs and the Disappeared, and there's two types of abductions, the temporary ones where they're taken and then brought back. I think my brother was a victim of this. He and his friend were in the desert. Uh, they were camping. Late at night, they saw what looked like a red light shoot across the sky and land, they thought, not far from them. Thinking it was a meteor, they decided to go into the desert and see if they could find it. They figured it couldn't be more than, oh, a quarter of a mile away. That's the last they remember. The next thing they remember is getting up in the morning, striking camp. His friend's father came and picked them up, and they drove home, and they never discussed it. Then over 20 years later, my brother was living in Vegas at the time. He had moved from San Diego. And he said um, he was watching a show, and suddenly he had this memory. So he called his friend John in San Diego and said, Do you remember our camping trip? Yes. Do you remember seeing a red light in the sky? Yes. Do you remember what happened next? No. Both have missing time, and I feel they were abducted. Although he does not claim that because he has no memory of it. Yeah, and of course then there's the other kind of type where people do mem remember. Um, recently we interviewed on this show um, Byron Lacey, who can remember quite avidly some of those um, abduction episodes. Um, it seems to be retrospectively, because once he's been abducted and he realizes because he's got bruises on him, and then he can suddenly start to recall um, some of the abduction. Um, but very, you know, interesting field. Well, many can't. They have to have hypnosis. My brother did have the scoop mark on him, and he had a strange small object in his elbow inside of, in, underneath the skin that he couldn't account for. But he never has remembered, neither has his friend. All they can, account, right. all they can say is they had missing time. But, yes, I think, uh, I think it's real. And what about um, how, it's, how UFOs and aliens are, um, for want of a better word, are depicted on television and in, on television shows and films. How do you think they influence our understanding? I think the um, I think it's a synergy. I think it comes up first in the field and people report things. Uh, for instance, uh, Betty and Barney Hill back in the uh, 60s reporting their abduction. So that turns into a movie and then it reverses and the movie affects people. I do think some of it's true, some of it isn't. My fear is that I feel that UFOs and aliens are not a good thing for us. A lot of people think they're our space brothers. But whenever you abduct people against their will, and now they're saying it's well over a million, and some never come back. You know, you have the abducted and you have the disappeared. And the number of disappearances is huge, I found out, all around the world and permanent. So if someone's abducting you against your will, even if they don't let you remember what happened so that you don't remember the pain, they're still violating your basic human rights with the abduction, with the experiments, and whatever else they do to you. So they don't seem to have morality in the same way that we do, and that bothers me. 
is there a way of preventing it? So, for example, if you, you know, from your travels and your research, so, for example, you've, you, you're aware that you've been abducted, you understand that that's happened several times. How would you prevent it? Is there a way of doing that? Have we? No, I don't, I don't think there is. If they want you, they will get you. And that's the other thing, that you don't have, seem to have any choice in this in any way, shape, or form. I haven't heard of anyone. I had a friend in New York State, an astronomer, who claims to have been abducted several times, and I said, couldn't you have stopped it? On the one hand, he kind of didn't want to. A lot of these people, it's a kind of reverse psychology. They feel special, singled out. Usually in their adulthood, at some point, it stops. It starts in their childhood, it repeats, and then sometime in their early to middle adulthood, it stops in many cases, not all. But um, the other thing was, I said, well, couldn't you lock the doors? He says, they, they came through the walls, apparently, or somehow took me out of the house with locked doors and windows. I don't know what you could do to stop them. Yeah. He also mentioned that there were grays and that there were blues involved, and the blues smelled like uh, rotting wet cardboard, is the way he described it. That's quite a vivid memory, isn't it? It is a very vivid memory, yeah, yeah. And he was a genius. I mean, this man was an astronomer. He, uh, gosh, I wish I had his intellect, but I don't. I think it's a fascinating subject. And certainly when interviewing Byron, he was very clear that there were certain triggers and there were, he would, he would be returned and he would know that he'd been and um, he would get the experiences of whether something was pleasurable or painful. Um, but that was over time. And after mm -hmm. several productions... And I didn't get a sense, actually, that he didn't want to be abducted or whether he did. And I didn't ask the question, um, which is quite interesting, really. But I didn't feel a need to ask the question. Well, some have a very negative memory of, of the incident, or if they don't have the memory, they have certain negative connotations when they see or feel certain things. I, um, I don't think that my friend David went through... Um, well, he went through negative things, but again, when you're singled out, you sort of do feel special for whatever reason you're singled out. So for a lot of children, I think there would be that element to it too. There's also a lot of fear. And uh, he was very afraid of seeing owls. Well, owls was the psychological substitute for the greys with their large eyes. Yeah. But he had an inordinate fear of owls, for instance, and he didn't know why at first. And then the memories, like you say, started coming back. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So... How do you think programs like The X-Files help to depict alien abduction and alien existence? or hidden Well, out? they go all over the map, of course, especially X-Files, but there's one thing they do seem to do. They always tend to picture the abductions in a negative light, and it's exactly how I feel. When I think of aliens, I think of Macbeth. By the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. Because I don't... People get abducted. People are injured. People die civilians and military. I mean, it's a matter of public record. And I've written about this in my books. People just disappear for good. They just vanish. Uh, David Polides uh, talks about it in his Missing 401 books, for instance. This goes on and on and on. So, number one, you have no choice. Number two, sometimes, and then there's cattle mutilations. There's damage to crops in the form of countless crop circles. Yes, some are hoaxes. I don't think all of them are. They just statistically couldn't be. So the end result is I don't think they're a good thing. I don't know what they're up to, but I don't think it's good for us. It might be good for them. So throughout all of your research, which is extensive, you, you, we haven't really got to the point where we can say what is the rationale behind abduction. Oh, well, I think the rationale is 
I think everyone thinks that they're doing experiments to them. Well, they're either experimenting on people and or they're altering them in some way. And one of my fears is they might be creating sleepers. If they are doing these implants, like my brother had this small piece of gray metallic plastic in his arm, he couldn't account for where it came from. Uh, if they are altering this in some way, my fear is that we might have a, a latent trigger in us that for those who are abducted at a certain point in a certain time that could be triggered and they could then respond. If you remember the movie The Fifth Wave, they actually had that in there. And uh, as some people were sleepers. And when you have over a million abductions, according to the latest MUFON statistics, that's a lot of sleepers. So what are those statistics based on? What, what is the criteria to meet those statistics? Well, what I liked about being a member of MUFON and a field investigator is they, they do thorough investigations. In fact, if I have any problem with them, it's the fact that all they do is investigate and don't come to any conclusions about it other than yep. what they have. And they have countless incidences of, of abduction. They have other witnesses involved in some cases. They have evidence in the form of scoop marks. I'm not a big fan of hypnotism myself. My brother thought about undergoing it to try to remember. I said, unless you have an expert hypnotist, they can accidentally plant false memories, so I'd advise against it. Um, and But there's a lot of evidence pertaining to the abductions. Are all abductions real? Probably not. Some people just have some psychological problems of some sort or emotional. Are a lot of them real? Yes, I think they are. The evidence would seem to support it. And in terms of... Um Aliens and time travel, how do they link? Well, we have had cases of interference in our history, uh, throughout our history, recorded history, dating back to the earliest times. And often, UFOs are sighted in these instances. Now, whether these are aliens from another planet, another dimension, or our own descendants from the future, or aliens from the future, it's hard to say. But we do seem to have aerial craft involved in a lot of our intrusions into our history. And those intrusions are at critical points in time and places where they make major alterations by interfering. Case in point, Alexander the Great was getting ready to invade India, crossing the Indus River to go into India. Some flying silver shields buzzed his army, maddened his war elephants, and panicked his troops. They no longer wanted to cross the river. He finally calmed them down and got them to go across. But shortly afterwards, they basically sort of mutinied, and he had to give in, and they had to head back west. It was as if they were deliberately interfered with so that they wouldn't conquer further east than just a little bit. Upon going back west, he laid siege to the city of Tyre. Now, according to his own historian, this is not someone else. This is his own historian saying this. Another silver flying shield appeared, shot a beam at the wall of Tyre and collapsed it, and he was able to take the city. Now, if Alexander the Great hadn't done that, he never would have conquered the west completely. He would have instead conquered further east. Tyre might have survived, and that might have been the end of his career. Instead, he did conquer it, and then we had the Pan-Hellenic culture all over that area as a result, all over the entire Western world, really, that was known of at the time. So if they hadn't interfered, then history would have changed. Now, why would aliens just do that for the fun of it? It looks as if they were deliberately trying to change the course of history in those instances. There's more. England had the great storm under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I and defeated the Spanish Armada that way. They refer to it as the divine storm, the great storm, the storm of providence. Uh, twice China in the Middle Ages tried to invade Japan. Both times they were defeated. The first time almost completely, 
losing all their men when the ships sunk during the great or divine wind, which they now call the kamikaze in Japan. That's where it comes from, the divine wind. Twelve years later or 14 years later, they tried again, and again they were defeated. So China never completed its invasion of Japan. If they had, the whole course of history would have been utterly different. During the War of 1812, the British invaded the United States. They marched on Washington, D.C., down the main boulevard. The American troops withdrew. They started setting fire. A great storm and or great wind struck them. A tornado went down the main boulevard of Washington, D.C. The British troops decimated. They were forced to retreat. And after that, the powers that be in Washington, D.C. said they were saved by the divine wind or the divine storm or the storm of providence, which means the same thing as God. So repeatedly, we were having some kind of strange critical interference. And by the way, the storm is highly localized. They refer to it as a hurricane, but it seems to have been localized to the Washington, D.C. area alone, which is strange. But the British retreated all the way to the coast, and that was the end of their attempted invasion of Washington, D.C. So Rather some bad smoke damage to the White House, but you know. <laughs> so it's so fascinating, isn't it, how we, we in, in the media, in television and films, we're always... Um, the next film that comes out will just be slightly um, more advanced in terms of our thinking around either aliens or time travel, etc. And the more research we do, the more we kind of catch up with that. Does that make sense to you? Did I put that in the right? Yes, it does. Up until recently, we have all been highly specialized. People explore UFOs. People explore ghosts or paranormal. I am more of a crossover. I'm trying to gather the data from all these fields. We do have recorded instances besides those of strange things happening in our history. We also have a lot of oopart that's been dug up, thousands of them actually, like the uh, map of the creator, for instance. We have a lot of physical evidence of strange things out of place in the times they're in. Now, if Is there a worry, alien... oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Is there a worry, though, that because we have gaps in our history, we, we can fill in the gaps with what we want it to be? Well, these aren't so much gaps as they're strange occurrences that we can't seem to account for. So what do we call them? Divine, the will of God, the, 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 the uh, storm of providence, the divine wind, the kamikaze, things like that. We don't know what else to call them. So we, we refer them to as being divine intervention. Well, there seems to be a lot of divine in interventions whenever we have invasions. And this seems strange. It's almost as if someone's trying to manipulate the timeline. Then, of course, there's the Mandela effect. People who remember things differently in great numbers than the way they happened, and they remember them exactly the same way, wrong way. It's, it's much more common than people realize. And this could be memories of an alternate timeline before it was altered, but some people remember it. Others don't. The majority don't. But we're not talking about historic events. What about more recently? How how would you so for our view, our, our listeners who are thinking, okay, well that was then, that was way back. We can't account for it. There could be a um, an error in recording. There could be a, a manifestation of we're going to call it this because we can't explain anything else. What about nearer to, to today? What have well, we seen that we could relate that to? Well, for England, you, have, you seem to have a weak spot in time around Liverpool on Bold Street. And in the immediate area of Bold Street, there have been a number of time travel incidences reported by people who are walking down Bold Street, and all of a sudden, shops that had long since closed were back open. The person thought they'd just moved back. And then they went into a bank, came back out, and the street was the way it was before. 
A man walked by a, uh, a church at the end of Bold Street. At night, he noticed the lights were on, everything was going. This was shortly after World War II. He thought, oh, they repaired it, and was surprised he hadn't heard about it because it would have been local big news, big church. And then the next day he walked by it, it was in dark and it was in ruins again. Uh, the thing wall incident, the woman moved to a village about 14 miles from uh, Liverpool and Bold Street. She uh, settled in, took a walk in her new village, went down this lane, saw lovely old-fashioned cottages, came to a gate, beyond it was a meadow. Then she decided to take her mother down that way a couple months later to show her when she came to visit. The street wasn't, uh, was still there, but the cottages were gone, the place was in ruins. A mill that had been there was in ruins. It was called Mill Lane, so it was named for that mill. And she yeah. didn't, she wasn't sure what to do, but then looking it up in old charts and maps in the city, she found that the lane was there and that the mill was there and everything was as she had seen it on her first walk. Uh, Bold Street seems to be one of the areas in England where this happens a lot. And you mentioned like sort of 14 miles outside of, of the street, so how... How would you? How could you relate that to that that street? It's forty miles away. That's well, quite a, a long way. I think it's the area in general, but it seems to focus on Bold Street, but not entirely. It seems to be like a weak spot in the in the time area. It's not the only one. There was a case of four girls in Utah, who wanted to go to a, another town in southern Utah, and they were rushing to get home because they stayed in a dorm at a certain hour. It closed. They'd be in trouble. And they were on a highway that had a history of being known as being haunted. Suddenly, it was very strange to them. They were lost. They didn't recognize the landscape. They pulled into a tavern, the parking lot of the tavern, called out to some men who were standing by another car. And then the one girl shouted, we've got to get out of here. We've got to get out of here. And they got back on the road. And the other woman said, what was wrong? What was wrong? She said, they weren't men. They didn't look human. And they were chased by this silver teardrop-shaped car for quite a ways. And then suddenly the car was gone, and they were back on the highway they recognized. There's all sorts of this around the world. So what, does, what makes up a... Um, you, you mentioned Liverpool and, and Utah as having like a, a difficulty or a, a weakness in the timeline. What does that actually mean? And well... It's a hard question to answer because I'm not going to understand any physics. So <laughs> what does that well, string, string theory demands that there has to be alternate realities. And uh, by some estimates, it's uh, 10 to the 500th power, which is an incredible number. For others, it's an infinite number. There's several different ways it could all be alternate realities. And these rea uh, alternate realities can be very close to us, as close as uh, a dust mote on the skin of your cheek, for instance, but it's just another dimension so we don't see, hear, or feel it. But under the right circumstances, it can happen, apparently. There was another case in England where a man had lost a bet uh, that he could run a certain distance in a certain time. So his friends followed him in a horse and cart. He ran ahead of them. He tripped and fell forward, and all the witnesses swear he never hit the ground. He just disappeared, was never seen again. This was documented by a number of people who had a bet on him and had every reason to want to make sure he wasn't cheating. Uh, there's numerous cases of people just vanishing in this way, and no one quite knows how or why. Uh, it just goes on and on and on, and it goes on throughout history. So it just makes you, how do they get to different timelines? I have no idea, but apparently sometimes the fabric of our universe and a neighboring alternate reality might be very thin, if, you, if this is the only way I can describe it, and we might cross over. The Mandela effect seems to support this, these people transposing to another timeline and then coming back. Um, 
There's one case, a woman, Lorena Garcia. She woke up one morning, and her house is pretty much the same, but her sheets were a different color. Her, some of her little tchotchkes, objects, objects to art around the house were different. She went to work. She still worked at the same building, but suddenly was in a different department with different uh, fellow workers. A boyfriend that she had been seeing for about six months had just vanished along with a son, never heard of. She hired How a private detective. I'm sorry? So if, you, if you wake up and things are slightly different, so I might get up in the morning, my dressing table, there might be a few things that are different on it. I notice it, but I don't think too much about it. I go to work and I go to the department that I, you would naturally go to the department surely that you should be at or you were at the day before. She did. Somebody told that you're going some, you're not, you're not in the right place. That's they thought a, she was a little crazy and they said, you don't work here, you work in this other department at this other place and, uh, Sure enough, her name was on the door over in that department, but not where she had been working every day since she had that job. She remembered her sister having some sh uh, shoulder surgery, and in this new reality, our reality, her sister did not. Um, she, uh, her boyfriend had vanished, and the guy that she had broken up with almost a year before, she was suddenly back with, and according to him, had always been. She was upset, hired a private detective, she even went to a psychiatrist, and she finally posted a plea on the Internet for anyone who had any information about these people, because she's desperate to find out. There was a case, supposedly, of a man who uh, landed in Japan. He showed him his passport, and he said he, he said it was from Toreg, a small place that is um, between Spain and uh, France. No such place. They put him up in a hotel. Uh, they went back to get him. He had vanished, along with everything else he owned. But he insisted he was from Toreg and didn't understand what was going on. Again... These sort of things go. So we have physical evidence and history of objects out of place, dug up that shouldn't be there. We have all these stories of uh, people, some with witnesses, some not. We have physics, which says that time travel is possible, even Einstein does. And we have our GPS system in place in orbit around Earth, which has to be constantly modulated and compensated for because time aboard the satellites is going slightly faster than on Earth. And that throws their GPS off, so it's constantly being corrected by the United States military. Would that be, would we look into things like Stonehenge, for example, and the making of Stonehenge and how those stones came to be here? Uh, th that to me falls into a different category entirely. I mean, uh, could that be some ancient civilization or culture? Absolutely. Uh, could it have something to do with this? Yes. Have I found any evidence in that regard? No. Okay, cool. Now, in terms of... Um, time traveling and changing time lines who who would be doing this how how have you um well we all would if they change history we don't recognize it as having been changed that's the way our history always was for instance under the mandela effect i am a great student of geography in school i used to doodle globe i draw a circle and then i draw the maps of different countries different continents and stuff on the map i used to do this daily i had some boring teachers and this is how i would doodle I constantly put Sri Lanka in the wrong spot. According to what I've read on the Mandela Effect, this is one of the common ones. Everyone remembers Sri Lanka as being in a different place. And it's not just a different place, it's the same wrong place. For instance, the color chartreuse. A lot of people, including a friend of mine, when you ask them what color chartreuse is, they say it's a reddish brown or maroon. They not only get it completely wrong, because it's really more of a lime green, but they get it wrong the same way. A lot of people remember Mandela dying in the 1980s. Well, he didn't. That's how they remembered. But oddly, they remember both versions of his death. Are they remembering another timeline? 
are they remembering ours after it's been altered? I'm not sure, but there's something to the Mandela effect. There's an interesting point in, in your book, which um, on your your blog, which for all of our listeners is robshelsky.blogspot.co.uk, there is um, there is a, a question here that says, "Can we both can we be both dead and alive at the same time?" Now, it's well, fascinating to me. So, how how explain that to me, Rob, please? Well, we can because if there's infinite parallel realities and some of them you're dead, never were born, some of them you're a billionaire and some of them you're a pauper and some of them you die young, some of them you die old, sometimes you die a success, sometimes you don't. Um, every possibility, according to the laws of quantum mechanics, if you follow that theory of parallel universes, um, would have to play out. So every possible subset of infinity, which would also be infinite of you, would be playing all these out. So in some quantum realities you exist, and some you don't. You see, now I have a, a, a quite, a, a, I suppose, a very primitive, but a, um, a view that that I, I absolutely believe in that alternate realities. Um, as a medium, you know, we we believe that people are here to learn, and they will continually be learning. So you might come back down into this kind of into the world to to learn a bit more later on. Um, if, for example, you haven't learned all of your lessons in this lifetime. But I do believe that that is more about not necessarily on this plane and this reality. It could be on multiple realities. And multiple timelines. Yeah. Uh, who knows? I mean, I'm getting a little metaphysical here, but if there is an infinity of you, maybe your soul is just a facet of a much larger diamond. Maybe all those other yous form one super soul of which your soul is just a part. Maybe it's your soul in every different possibility or probability that wants to learn everything. But maybe not coming back, maybe doing it all at one time in different timelines. Just a thought. Yeah, no, that is a really interesting thought, isn't it? And, I, and how would um, kind of that deja vu effect um, maybe fit into that, and how we believe we've been somewhere before or we have been there before? Or Well, there's many types of deja vu. There's deja entendu, there's... Déjà éprouvé, déjà fait, déjà pensé, déjà rencontré, déjà senti, déjà su, déjà trouvé, déjà vécu, and déjà voulu. So there's many forms of déjà vu. You are either, now science says this, it could be um, a, a problem with the brain, a delay in the synapse response, which makes you feel that something that just occurred had already occurred. No proof of that whatsoever. They have no scientific, it's just an idea. There's no scientific evidence whatsoever, and I did research this, to back that up. It's just, because someone says something so, without any proof, doesn't make it so. And there's just so many kinds of deja vu, and not only that, there's synchronicities. And these synchronicities seem to defy time. Well, Rob, I could spend hours talking to you, trying to make sense of all of this. <laughs> it's just, it's a drop of the, in the ocean, isn't it? It's just a drop in the ocean, this, this thought that actually... Um, people might need to manipulate or would manipulate a timeline, but then there could be multiple timelines and multiple ultimate um, alternate realities being changed at the same time. But for what means? Because well, it, to, it, it may be it may be that we're living in a simulation. You do uh, know that, like for instance, that uh, a simulation because they have found evidence in string theory. 
for uh, binary code. They have actually found it in the formulas for string theory. A um, physicist discovered it when he was going over string theory. And it isn't just any binary code. It is self-correcting binary code that is used by Yahoo and Google to correct transmissions of data. Now, what this block linear code is doing in uh, a basic theory of the entire universe, a theory of everything, is pretty hard to understand because it shouldn't be there. Uh, but And also, another physicist said that there is a higher probability that we're living in a simulation than not. If you take the idea that our descendants will increase computer power under Moore's law, that if they want to create simulations, they would do historical ones, and they might do many. And those simulations might also do such simulations when they reach that stage within the simulation. So if this is true, if there is a descendant civilization, ours or alien, if they decide they want to explore history, as in the form of a game, or just to see how it unfolds, they create the simulation. And according to the laws of probability, it is highly more likely that we are living in the simulation than not. I'm not saying this, a physicist is. And I think what's really kind of fascinating for me is that, again, how we are seeing the links through our own... See, I wouldn't have known any about anything like this, Rob, in terms of physics, etc., because that's not my field. So listening to you talk is, is a real kind of revelation and has got me really thinking. But then when I, I sit down and I think, well, every maybe two weeks we have a film night in our house where we all get together and we watch a movie together and have some food, etc., I recommend The 13th Floor if you haven't seen it. Okay, thank you. But mm -hmm. those, those film nights, you know, and how, how either we're watching something about horror and aliens or whether we're watching something like um, The Hunger Games or um, there's, a, there's so many different films and things out there right now which are about simulation. They're about social control. They're about um, the end of the earth as we know it because there's something more that's controlling that. And, we, and it just seems that our history and our understanding continually um, is met by our, our knowledge. Of, I mean, obviously, the scientific knowledge is greater, but we're following that through with our films and our way of thinking and our, our consideration of what could be. We're opening up our eyes more and more to the possibility, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. For instance, if we are simulations, then time is an illusion. It's strictly a part of the program, and whoever's running the simulation could dip in and out of it, just as we dip in and out of different settings in various simulated games right now, World of Warcraft, for instance. Um, we have evidence of time storms as well. Again, one took place in England, Robert Goddard, in 1935. Very famous. Uh, we have disappearing soldiers in Chile who show up. They have a week's growth of beard. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were clean-shaven. They show up 15 minutes later. No memory of the last week, but for them a week's gone by. For the people who saw them missing, only 15 minutes has gone by. This stuff is all over the place. It's amazing how much of it there is. And is all this information in your, in your books, Rob? Yes, it is. It's all in uh, Time Travel Invasion, yes. And how can people get hold of this book? Because it's, it's fascinating, this whole kind of theory, and I'm sure you describe it much better than, than I may have asked you questions on today. So where can people grab the book? Well, they can get it at Amazon in either print or um, Kindle, and they uh, can get it at Amazon US. Or, By the way, it's selling pretty darn well in the UK and on Amazon there. And uh, they can also uh, get it through Smashwords if they want other ebook formats. It's at Smashwords. And, uh, well, it's distributed through a whole bunch of outlets. So 
if they wanted to order it from a bookstore, I'm sure they could with no problem. So what's next for, for you? you? You've written this amazing book that talks about alternate realities, time travel, different timelines, how we might have this kind of much bigger than, I suppose, aspect, bigger game being played. It's not just about social control. It's much bigger than that. What's next for you in terms of your research and, and your um, investigative nature in, in the field? Well, I want to do a book about Mars and the moon Phobos, which actually may be hollow, and there is the hollow moon theory of Earth as well. Um, I was researching Project Pegasus, which is about translocation of children. They use children, supposedly the federal government, you know, black project, to send them through time, and they could also translocate in space. And this one person uh, in it claims that he was translocated to Mars, and there's a base there. He also claims he was translocated in the past and even shows a picture of himself. It's in my book of him standing in a crowd along with Abraham Lincoln in the distance. And he claims that the child in that picture is a picture of him. Is it true? I don't know. But it certainly is intriguing and I want to learn more about it. Do you, do you interview those people? Have they had like um, past life regression? Uh, in this case, no, he did not. And uh, it had nothing to do with past life regression. Uh, I have interviewed people who are so-called far-seers, distant-seers, and they claim that there's a base on Mars as well. So there's a number of, of versions of this. Um, is it true? I don't know yet. I'm still researching in the book, but I'd like to find out. There is evidence that Phobos might be hollow. It's too, its density is too low uh, for the size moon it is. It's not a large moon. And it's like only about 17 miles long. But uh, it also is in a very odd retrograde orbit around Mars that we can't account for. And, of course, we have the same anomalies with our own moon. It's too low in density for its size. We can't figure out where the missing mass is. So two Soviet scientists have come up with a spaceship moon theory that's actually a camouflaged starship. And uh, that was an interesting theory, and I followed that up. And there are a lot of oddities about the moon. One very famous scientist at NASA said it's easier to explain that the moon doesn't exist than to explain its existence. There are that many oddities about it. So there's a lot out there to explore. certainly is. You've blown me away this evening, Rob. I think <laughs> Good, that was the intention. <laughs> Good, yeah. I, mean, I, I think um, probably out of many interviews I've done, this has been the most thought-provoking because of my mediumship views. So I'm a medium who will say, I get the information I get, but I'm not completely 100% sure as to what that's about, how that happens, or, or, or where that's always from. Have you tried? Uh, have you tried far distance viewing? I'm just curious. I've, I've no. I well, I I've done remote viewing, so I can look into somebody's house. I can look into a different place. Same I, thing. Remote viewing, far yeah, distance. I can, describe, yeah. I can describe that environment, which when I'm on stage is very funny to people. We have quite a giggle over it because, I mean, several people have said to me, "Oh, I wish I'd tidied up, or I I should have cleaned those drawers out." I should have. But I can't see that kind of detail. I can just, because the way spirit gives me information is in a format that they know I'm going to kind of translate to have meaning to the person in front of me. So I might be given a very modern, um, an image, for example, of a popular sitcom, um, mm -hmm. a living room to describe somebody else's living room. Because, of course, I'm not describing the living room that that is on the sitcom, I'm describing the layout, the furniture, the kind of feel, and then I get a, a, a colour, I get the colour scheme, I get the, the feeling in the home, or if there's any particular um, 
things I need to bring up, like an ascent that comes in somewhere or a feeling or etc. So I don't, I, I don't get what's in somebody's drawer, clearly. But people will um, have quite a giggle with me over that when I'm on stage. And I think it's actually quite a nice... Um, and I presume you stay out of bedrooms, correct? <laughs> no, no. I, I, interestingly enough, and this is, no? this, this is the truth, when I first, um, from a very young age, I had spiritual tendencies and I could see things, but I didn't relate it to mediumship. I was too young. Um, I had my children very young. I lived on my own. I suddenly become very fearful of spirit and ghosts because I lived on my own with three young children. Mm. And uh, there were people that maybe would have, um, you know, joked about how horrible hauntings were and if the light bulb swings and you know something's going on. And I was young and naive and would believe all of this stuff. And then when I was in my early 30s, my mediumship really switched on. And um, I was talking to this this chap and I gave him a reading out of the blue. I'd, I'd never done it before. I had no idea what was going to happen next. I just I just went with what I thought I had to do. And the next morning, I suddenly realized, actually, there's something good going on here. I can use this. So in my, kind of, again, in my immaturity, I, I kind of, still in my 30s in immature, I hasten to add, I was saying, this is great. Who's the person you're sat with, with the pink and white striped sh- shirt? And he'd be like, get out of here. I can't believe you know I'm, I'm sat here. Yep. Who's the person on your left that's saying this, that, and the other? Why is your wedding ring on the other hand? What? And he was like, you need to get out of my space. And I said, you know the, the blue alarm, the silver alarm clock with the blue backlight? It was like right out of the bedroom. Out. Wow. Just get out. So, do, you, I mean, do you have synchronicities as well? Do you, in what sense? Well, for instance, I traveled to England a lot, and I had a friend there in Ilfacombe. And before going over there, I had read Da Vinci's Code, and I wanted to see Glastonbury Abbey and, and Rose, Roslyn Chapel in Scotland. And I said this out loud to a friend of mine. An hour later, he wrote me and he said, you know, we've never been there. I'd like to take you to Glastonbury Abbey. Well, we went there. We had a five-day trip. We went to Glastonbury Abbey. We went to another abbey where we took a picture out of a window where the first English photograph was taken. We went to Wells Cathedral. We went up north and we stayed on Lake Coniston in the Lake District. We then went up to Hadrian's Wall. Then on the way home, we stopped it in Wales at Roglan Castle, then got home. Now, after we got home, we turned on the TV, and there was a show about a, an early British photographer who developed color, and he wanted to use it, and he took a trip. He took the exact same trip we had just finished in the exact same order to every single place, no more, no less. Wow. That's quite a synchronicity when you get home after a five-day trip, and there's your trip on TV, only it's a century old. That's amazing. Because it was in 1919. That was amazing. Yeah. It was, yeah. And so I, I think synchronicities show that there are glitches in time. Yeah. And I asked him, because he's, he's, I hate to say the term typically British, but he's very hard-nosed and very down-to-earth, and I, and I had mentioned synchronicities to him, and I said, now do you see what I mean about synchronicities? He said, yes. I said, do you think this was one? He goes, yes, a big one. I said, what do you think about it? And his answer was, I don't want to, and I don't want to talk about it. And you know, he never would after that, ever. Ever. Not for years and years and still hasn't. I wonder what the fear is around that. Uh, it shakes one's reality up, doesn't it? It, you know, is all that we see or seen but a dream within a dream, to quote Edgar Allan Poe. And that's a little scary. According to physics, we're 99.999% vacuum in that little tiny point zero 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 one percent is actually vibrating particles or vibrating strings. 
So we actually are ghosts living in a world of ghost material. The only reason we don't pass through each other is because of um, subatomic repulsion. Uh, there's a force that uh, forbids us moving through other particles, and that gives us the illusion of reality and solidity. I, I say quite often when I'm on stage, and certainly um, a couple of years ago, I remember being on stage and saying to somebody, I can't tell you how I know what I know. I just know what I know. I can't tell you that there is life at death and afterlife and what it means. I can tell you that people are happier. I can tell you that when somebody passes over and they, they give a message through me or pass to wherever they have passed to, whether that be a, a death and a passing over or whether it be a, a progression or whether it be a jump somewhere, I don't know, that they have a different reality. So um, you're a happy medium. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And uh, because I think that I just don't fall into the category of mediums that can say, this is what the afterlife looks like. This is how it is, because I've never been given that information. I was going to say, I don't think any of them have. I've read the books of Seth and a number of others, because, of course, I have an interest in a lot. I've read The Holographic Universe by Michael Talbot. And none of them seem to be able to describe the other side very well. And uh, yet, in so many cases, the medium seem to be able to describe other things in detail, but not that. And I always, other than it's a series of vibratory levels or planes, that sort of thing. So I have been really inclined to want to do a book on that. And if I do, I'm going to have to interview you. Yeah, that you, that's absolutely fine. Because I think, I think it is a fascinating subject, because certainly when my mediumship, and I'm going to say loosely switched on, I... I couldn't understand it. I didn't understand what was happening. I knew it to be a communication. I knew it to be it, to be termed in a very holistic sense, as, as a, an overview sense of mediumship, but I don't didn't really understand what that meant. So well, I just knew that I you know, had... you know the mind, the human consciousness, actual physical scientific experience shows that we don't live in one instant only. The human consciousness they have proof from numerous uh, experiments at different universities that the human mind can see 10 seconds into the future and exists in the past and compensates for that to make it in the present. Uh, they've done studies where they hooked people up to galvanic skin response machines, showed them a series of random photos, all pretty happy scenes, but there randomly, even the, the experimenters didn't know when, there'd be a horrible image. And the, the subjects all reacted anywhere from two to ten seconds before the image showed, their body reacted as if they were about to see something horrible before they saw it. So it, it seems pretty much a given. The human consciousness can exist up to ten seconds in the future or see the future up to ten seconds. And also, because of the delay of our sensory input before, by the time it gets to the brain, we also live um, about a half a second in the past, and the human mind has to compensate for that. If you're throwing a ball to someone, for instance, and you're living half a second in the past, it's awfully hard to catch that ball because it'll have passed you. But somehow, our consciousness has learned to compensate. It's even worse when you're driving a fast car on a racetrack at 200-plus miles an hour. You really have to compensate. So the human consciousness there actually does seem to be scientific evidence that it exists outside of time, in which case that would seem to mean that it exists on some level other than just the physical reality. So what you're saying could easily be true. Oh, Rob, you're going to have to come back. You're going to have to come back on and, and let me explore this further with you and understand it more because it's it's amazing subject, isn't it? It's just endless. <laughs> and there's a lot to it, yes, there is. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, and I am absolutely no, um, I've got no scientific background whatsoever. So hearing you speak confidently, it gives me, you know, I suppose it gives me much more information to kind of then think about and ask more questions on later on. But I have to get my head around it because obviously a lot of what you're, you're talking about is scientifically based. I am, but okay, I, that, that would be fine. I'd love to come back sometime. That'd be amazing, and I would really appreciate it. So, your next book, after after you've um, done your research, what's your timeline for that? When do you think that will come out? Um, I believe that's going to be out in about four months. Wow, so you've got to conclude all your research and then pull the book together in that time. Well, my research is my book, if you know what I mean. All I have to do is give it a framework, and the way I do my notes, I do an outline, and then I just quickly write the book from the outline. It's the fact-checking and the research, because I don't like less than three sources for any of my facts, and that's what really takes the time. Then the writing part comes pretty easily. And I guess that, you know, in terms of your, you, you, you should, you know, you're a popular author, um, you have those, those, um, contacts, I suppose, to be able to get the research from quite easily, or is it, is, is it time-consuming? Sometimes it's very easy, and sometimes it's pulling hen's teeth. And sometimes people will say, oh, yes, I, I'll let you interview me, and then they seem to avoid me like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to find alternative, uh, alternative means of trying to get the information you need. But, you know, it's, um, the access is getting easier and easier, and as my contacts spread, there are people who introduce me to people, and that really helps too. And also, having been in MUFON, I had a lot of first-hand information. I had a huge database at my disposal, for instance. Well, it's been amazing to talk to you this evening, Rob, and I really appreciate your time. And um, for anybody listening, I would really urge you to, to grab the book, Time Travel Invasion. So we've heard it's on Amazon, it's on um, Smashwords. There's, there's just numerous places you can grab it. So if you go to robshelsky.blogspot.co.uk and click on New Releases, um, a little bit about the book is there, where you can get the book is there, and a little bit about Rob as well. So thank you again, Rob. Really appreciated smashing interview. And uh, next time you're in the UK, you make sure you look me up. I will do that, ma'am. Lovely. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.